The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for this corporate teleconference on explaining the public charge rules. I am Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I am honored to introduce to each of you my esteemed colleagues from the Murthy Law Firm, Joel Janovich, a member, and Jessica Beaver, also a member, uh, who've been with the firm each for over 10 years, approximately 10 years each, and uh, have a wealth of knowledge on various aspects of immigration law. So today we're going to be describing the public charge rule that recently went into effect on February the 24th of 2020. We hope to discuss the implications that this rule may have on your employees in the non-immigrant and immigrant context, both here in the United States and abroad at U.S. consular posts across the globe. So, of course, most of you have some idea of what is public charge, what it means and what the impact is. But basically, from a legal perspective, public charge is a ground of inadmissibility under the Immigration and Nationality Act, Section 212, little a, little 4. Basically, it means that the government can prevent a person from either entering the U.S. as a non-immigrant or entering and becoming admitted as a permanent resident if the person is likely to become a public charge, meaning that they are going to become primarily dependent on the government for subsistence. So with that, can we just briefly, Joel, go over how public charge was viewed in the past so that we can compare and contrast it with what the government is now planning to impose under the Trump administration? Sure. Thank you, Sheila. Um, Prior to 1996, the the rules for public charges have been on the books for many, many years. But prior to 1996, there wasn't any real formal guidance. Um, At that point, they instituted the I-864 form, uh, which is the Affidavit of Support, which is used for family-based cases. It was not used for employment-based cases. In 1999, um, the, the guidance was updated again. Um, and basically at that point, which is the rule that we've had in place until, you know, right when they've changed this, this rule uh, very recently, it was if you were likely to become a public charge, if it was a person who was primarily dependent, dependent on the government for subsistence, um, as demonstrated by either the receipt of public cash assistance for income maintenance or institutionalization for long-term care uh, at government expense. And for uh, some of the types of benefits that could make uh, you subject to public charge findings included supplemental security income, um, temporary assistance for needy families, um, some Medicaid programs, some state general assistance programs. Uh, This was a totality of the circumstances test, and um, there was really no additional interpretation beyond that. And ultimately, what we found, especially for employment-based cases, is that this was primarily a non-issue. Um, it would be very unusual that you would have an employment-based case where you would run into problems um, w- with uh, public charge issues. Okay, thank you, Joel. 
Um, obviously, that has completely changed, effective from February 24th of 2020. So, Jessica, will you go over the rules and explain how this could impact employers for their employees who may be entering on H-1B or H-4s or green card holders, et cetera? Sure. So with this new public charge rule that Sheila has just mentioned going into effect February 24th, it's not retroactive. It only applies to applications filed on or after February 24th, 2020. It looks at the prospective use that someone is going to use these public benefits, but it also can look at the receipt of past benefits. Um, they're really looking at the applicants for admission or applicants for adjustment of status. The new type of definition that we have for public charge is a non-citizen who receives one or more public benefits for more than 12 months in the aggregate within any 36-month period, where receipt of two benefits in one month can count as two months. So like I said, it's prospective in nature, i.e. likely to receive public benefits. So they've kind of expanded um, based on what Joel was saying by public assistance that can can render you um, to have this public charge issue. So in addition to the you know supplemental security income, the temporary assistance for needy families, the general kind of assistance from any federal, state, or local cash benefit program, also the supplemental nutrition assistance program, also called SNAP, often known as food stamps, Section 8 housing assistance under the Housing Choice Voucher Program, as well as Section 8 project-based rental assistance, including moderate rehabilitation, Medicaid, and public housing under Section 9 of the U.S. Housing Act of 1937. So taking any of these is considered a negative in terms of likely to become a public charge. Correct. And a lot of these, um, we'll kind of get into the details of the forms and what people are going to have to provide. But just to give you some ideas of what does not count for public charge are, are things like free and reduced lunch or, um, or WIC. Okay. Uh, there are a couple of major exceptions that the law has sort of carved out, of, not even the law, it's really the regulations, how they've interpreted most of pretty much by looking at the Section 212A4 of the INA uh, for those who are not penalized under the new policies. Basically, there are two major categories. Um, one is for Medicaid. So for those who are taking emergency care or services provided under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, school-based services for students below secondary education level, benefits that are received by individuals under the age of 21, basically by children, or benefits received by pregnant women um, and within 60 days after the pregnancy or childbirth. Uh, and also the other category are m military families, which includes the person in the military, the spouse or the child. If a person is in military service and they receive any of these benefits or um, at the time of filing or even at the time of adjudication of their immigration benefits, they are basically exempt. So if you're in the military, you would be exempt uh, from um, being penalized. And the final third category are children uh, who will acquire citizenship, basically minor lawful permanent resident children with one U.S. citizen parent who resides in the U.S. with that parent or adopted children So under the Child Citizenship Act. So those are also exempt. But other than these couple of two or three categories, really it sounds like it's they're trying to extend and 
the long arm of the statute is trying to go grab more and more people so that they can slap them with a penalty. So in order to understand, Jessica, the totality of the circumstances test and the heavily weighted factors, which is more likely than not, what are some of the factors that the government considers? I'll have both Jessica and Joel maybe talk about some of these factors. Sure, Sheila. And just to reiterate, a lot of these factors were kind of on the books before, but they've really been um, expanded upon themselves as well as some more factors looked at. Mm -hmm. Basically, they can look at the age of the applicant. Is the person of an employable age? And whether or not it makes them, you know, more or less likely to be employable. So they'll look to see people that are 18 up until kind of retirement age as a positive factor, someone that can kind of take care of themselves and work. The second one is health whether the applicant has a medical condition that impacts his or her ability to care for his or herself, to attend school, or to work upon admission um, or adjustment of status. So yes, they're looking at the I-693 form, which is of course that medical report done by the civil surgeon. They're also looking at private health insurance, evidence if there's an extensive um, medical condition someone has that will require them to have extensive treatment or basically interfere with their ability to care for themselves. Um, as well as attend school or work. They kind of look at that as a negative factor. They also look at family status. So in their mind, the larger the household size, the the more that you have to provide for, for that household. So they're kind of looking at that as well. Okay. I, I think that kind of ties in, Jessica, to uh, one of the factors they're looking at, which is a, a very important one, assets, your resources, your financial status. Um, obviously, if you have more income coming in, um, and that's going to tie into the family status as well, if you have more income coming in, that's going to uh, certainly help your case that you're not likely to become a, a public charge. So they are going to be looking at things like your gross house- household income, your cash assets, so money you having in a savings account, for instance, your non-cash assets that can be converted to cash within 12 months. So if you have stocks that you could easily sell, um, that could be viewed as an asset that you could use. Um, they can look at credit history. So if you have a credit history, if you're new to this country, you may not. Um, but if you do have a credit history, they will look at that, your credit score. Um, they will also look to see if you have private health insurance. Um, if you have health insurance through Obamacare, that is not considered positive or negative. Uh, I'm, I think it's not an accident the Trump administration wanted to exclude that. But if you have otherwise, you have private health insurance, um, it is a, a positive factor that can work in your favor. Uh, they can also look at things like your education and skill set. So um, your employment for the last few years, do you have at least a high school degree or higher? Your certificates, your licenses. They can look at English language proficiency, which is um, something relatively new as far as this goes. Um, And they can also look at your prospective immigration status and your expected period of admission. If you're coming in as a tourist for a few months, that's going to be looked at very differently as as opposed to someone that's coming here uh, long term, maybe even permanently uh, on a green uh, green card. That makes perfect sense, which is why when we were discussing uh, the panel, it seemed to make so much less sense to have this onerous form and this onerous exercise to have to go through completing all of this information and checklists and documents and under looking at underlying documents for employment-based cases, primarily H-1s and green cards, which is why I guess the law never had this requirement previously because it was not relevant for 
um, um, you know, for most cases. Uh, anyway, some of the heavily weighted negative factors that the government will take into account are if the person is not a full-time student uh, and is authorized to work but either is unable to demonstrate current employment, employment history or reasonable prospect of employment. So if you have an EAD card, for example, on as an F1 OPT student and you're not working, clearly that's not a good sign. Similarly, if a person has received or certified to receive one or more public benefits for more than 12 months in the aggregate in the past 36 months, and I saw that they came out with that crazy formula that if you take two of them, then it's like considered double. So um, very clever, creative ways that they are trying to stretch what the definition and the time frames. Also, a person who has been diagnosed, like a little bit, but uh, Jessica already touched upon, if you've been diagnosed with a medical condition that is likely to require extensive medical treatment or interfere with your ability to take care of yourself, and you don't have insurance or the prospect of insurance, big negative factor. And if a person was previously found in, either inadmissible or deportable on public charge grounds, either by an immigration judge or by the Board of Immigration Appeals, so those are all the heavily negative factors. Now let's look at the heavily positive factors. So they look at issues like household income, your assets, your resources, and support of at least 250% of the federal poverty guidelines. So approximately, let's say the federal poverty guidelines are at like 30,000 for a family of four. So 250 would be 100 times 60, and there's 75, so around $75,000 per year um, for, for a family of four, per, plus, uh, 75 plus thousand, which by the way varies from state to state because Alaska and Hawaii have different numbers. So I'm just giving a very, very, very general rule of thumb because people always scratch their heads when it comes, and the devil's always in the details, of course. So that I-864P on the USCIS website will kind of give those exact numbers that Sheila is mentioning um, based on the household size. Okay, good. Thank you, Jessica. If a person is work authorized and is currently employed at or about 250 percent of the federal poverty guidelines for the, uh, the household, or if there's appropriate private health insurance for the expected period of admission, all those are fantastic. So now let's jump to how this applies, because this is brand new, to form I-129, which is almost every non-immigrant worker kind of form, whether it's H-1 or L-1s, et cetera. Joel, if I can have you talk about sure. that. Sure. So as we mentioned earlier, this is going to apply for non-immigrants and immigrants. However, it the way it's going to be uh, applied in practice is very different. For non-immigrants where you're filing uh, the Form I-129, it's a much more of a binary issue where they're going to ask, has the person received any benefits since the last time uh, they filed an extension? This It's for extensions or change of status. Has the person received any of these benefits? Um, what we're finding, especially in the employment-based context, most people are going to be saying no to the questions on there. They haven't, they haven't received any benefits. They haven't been certified to receive any benefits, and it's relatively straightforward. Um, where it can get complicated in the I-129 uh, situation is, for instance, the person may be working and, and not have a, a financial issue, but they have, a, let's say, a child with a disability in school who's enrolled in some type of program to treat that disability that is through a Medicare-type program. Now, I, I will tell you a lot of the times they're gonna, they, they will be exempt, and this will not count against them from a public charge, but you're going to have to figure that out. You're going to have to go through and answer these questions appropriately. So it can get complicated in those situations, and 
in those cases, you frankly, you're probably going to need to consult with with one of the attorneys here. We can certainly walk you through that. Um, but again, where otherwise they haven't used any of these types of benefits from the I-129 perspective, it's really just a matter of, of checking a few a few boxes. And one of the things that was different from the proposed rule to the final rule is that they are asking just if the beneficiary has received, so not necessarily that their dependents have received. So it's really important to kind of see, you know, who has taken it in the family and exactly how to answer the question. Great. So next, let's go to the Form I-944, which is the Declaration of Self-Sufficiency for every adjustment applicant Correct. to be provided to, that needs to do it with the I-485? Exactly. So the, the Form I-944 is not required with the Form I-129 that Joel was just talking about. However, it is required for most I-485 applications. Of course, there are exceptions to this rule for people such as refugees, asylees, um, Afghan and Iraqi special visa interpreters, as well as some other categories like U-Visa, T-Visa, and most self-petitioners under the Violence Against Women Act. These um, categories are clearly listed out, not only in the instructions for the 944, but also on the I-485 form itself. It will ask you if you're exempt from including this with the application. So it's very clear as to who has to include it. Um, The surprising thing, though, I guess it really is interesting. One would think that it should be if only, for example, one person in the family has an H-1B, or the whatever, you would expect only the principal H-1B holder to have to file it, but that's not my understanding. Correct. For this, because the government sees it as each individual is trying to adjust status, they do require one per person. So even if your child is three years old and is filing the I-485 application, they're filing an, a form I-944. As always, you, the parent, can sign for any child under 14 and any child under 21 can use the parent's information. So and it's the, the equivalent of the I-539. So in my previous mm-hmm. example, the child mm-hmm. is going to be still revealing the information on mm-hmm. the, the 539 stage. So here it's, mm-hmm. they're, they're getting it on the, uh, on the green card stage for everyone. So all children under 21 can use their parents' information and IRS transcripts can be used for the main person and household members? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So what's so to try to define what is a household member? It is the principal applicant. If it's you, then it's you. It's the spouse. If the spouse, if a husband or wife is physically residing with you, children under the age of twenty-one and uh, who are unmarried and physically residing with the apple, the principal applicant, and other ch- uh, uh, other children under twenty-one who are unmarried but and not physically residing but for whom you provide or are required to provide at least 50% of their financial support. So, for example, if your child went off to college and they don't happen to be actually living in your household, but you're supporting them, that would be a great example of that. I would think that with the tuition fees, it's way more than (laughs) 50%. And any other individuals, including a spouse who's not residing, so if your spouse is, let's say, abroad, dealing with a family situation for several months, but you have to provide that spouse or are required to provide at least 50% financial support, or you have listed that person as a dependent on the tax return, uh, then that's considered a household member. What about assets and liabilities, Joel? So from the assets perspective, um, you know, the biggest asset a lot of people are going to own is going to be their home. Um, it's gonna, you're going to have to show the kind of the appraisal value. And you're also going to, as part of the liabilities, show any kind of loan or lien that you have against that house. 
Um, things like your car, and as I mentioned before, you have to show that the asset can be converted to cash reasonably within 12 months. So you can show a car as an asset um, uh, only if you have more than uh, one car. Um, you can show your checking and bank, checking and savings bank accounts, annuities, stocks, bonds, uh, retirement accounts, uh, net cash value of any real estate holdings you have beyond your house. And um, as far as liabilities go, you're going to have things like your mortgage, as I mentioned, car loan, uh, credit card debt, uh, any kind of education loans, which can be a big one, uh, tax debt, liens, and, and personal loans that you're going to show. How and much time is it going to take the government to look at? That sounds crazy to look at every credit card debt, 5, 10 credit cards, you have to add the money all together. I mean, it just sounds like craziness. I mean, this is such a waste of time, effort, energy, money. And it's really important for all of our clients to, you know, think about these assets and liabilities are not just U.S. assets. They can also be foreign assets. So mm. some people will have pension accounts or, or land abroad or bank accounts abroad. So they can kind of use all of that um, in that report as well. And like Joe was mentioning, not just are you listing these assets and liabilities in the form, you're also providing a credit report um, within the past 12 months. And so even if you haven't been to the United States and it's your first entry and you don't have a social security number, you can still get a credit report that says there is no report. Um, mm -hmm. You're also showing if you've ever filed for bankruptcy. Um, but like Joel was mentioning earlier, things like health insurance, showing that you have that type of coverage. If you've ever applied for, received, been certified to receive, been disenrolled, basically if you've ever applied for a public benefit and gotten anything from that, they want to know. Um, but like Sheila had mentioned previously, there are exceptions for those that have served in our armed forces, as well as certain types of um, exceptions to when you take Medicaid. Um, on the I-944 form itself, it also says if you don't have an I-140 approved in your name, then you're also listing out your degrees received and getting an education evaluation to go with your application, as well as asking about your English language proficiency. And the government does want to know, have you ever used a fee waiver for certain immigration benefits? Are you telling me that for the spouses who have never worked and can't even work or couldn't work till they get the age for EAD have to provide or spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to obtain a credentials evaluations to submit with the 944 form now? According to the instructions, yes. And it's very hard because the instructions basically say required evidence is anything that's been listed. So um, we're kind of preparing it and we'll kind of see how the government So we won't know, necessarily everything. See, have to decide whether we want to because clients may say, I don't want to spend thousands of dollars. Let's see if we get an RFE for it or not, especially in the beginning as the government themselves are trying to figure out how to make this work. So next you have the U.S. Department of State for consular processing cases. I know we've been seeing... 212A4 denials, even when people have been coming on F1s or F2s, where the government feels that the people may work or may not have sufficient money, etc., where the consular officer during the interview. Well, and but I was just going to mention, Sheila, that even in 2018, they kind of updated the Foreign Affairs Manual, even before this new mm -hmm. process went into effect, putting extra things about public charge, um, making it a, a lot more difficult for family-based uh, family cases. Right, right. So they updated nine Foreign Affairs Manual section 302.8 then now we have the ds5540 and with instructions detailed instructions so these this is the department of state form like the way you fill out the online ds you know 160 and 260 now you fill out the ds5540 with instructions um, uh, similar to what the uscis is asking for it's an expedited form it has to be used again after February 24th. It's one form per family and not per person 
like with the USCIS. Um, and they are going to ask for certain documentation like evidence of health insurance or IRS transcripts only if they actually ask it or require it from you. And the same factors and totality of circumstances as we have explained before will apply negative and positive factors. Uh, what about for employment-based cases? Can they use the expected income from the labor certification, Jess? Yes. So there is a question on the DS-5540 that basically asks, you know, if you're employed or basically if you're going to be employed once entering the U.S., what is the expected salary that you will get? So for a lot of employment-based um, cases, employers should really try to provide a letter for those going through consular processing indicating not only the rate of pay, but it also will be helpful to say if they're going to get health benefits and when they would become effective. Um, that evidence should kind of help with that employment-based type case. Like Sheila was mentioning, the only real things required on the DS-5540 in terms of evidence are basically health insurance and tax uh, information. However, the form asks for a lot of information. So you'll still be gathering up all these documents. You just won't have to necessarily submit them. But let's say that you were trying to submit bank deposits, you would, as they suggest in the Foreign Affairs Manual, get a letter from a senior officer of the bank showing the date the account was opened, the number of deposits and withdrawals during the past 12 months, and basically how the currency could be transferred to the U.S. Um, this is pretty much a tactic so that people don't transfer money, for example, into a friend or family's bank account that just was created. They want to kind of see these assets that have been around for at least 12 months. Oh, wow. Okay. And what about for non-immigrants, Joel? So for non-immigrants at the Department of State when they're applying for a visa, it should be a bit easier. They're they're not automatically, one of the pieces of good news, they're not automatically going to be required to fill out the DS-5540. Um, basically, they can go in if the consular officer is satisfied that they, don't, they are not likely to become a public charge fine. Um, if they're not, if they're not convinced, they can request or m make the applicant um, fill out the form, or they could just ask the questions from the form um, orally to the applicant. Um, some other things to keep in mind, the, the rules for, for 212A4 are still going to apply, so you still have that issue. Um, most, you know, especially with students um, applying where they don't have a lot of assets, that can be an issue. Um, so the, the standard rules still apply, it's just that they have this added factor, this updated revised version of the public charge. And I should mention, the, the general rules for public charge still apply equally to non-immigrants as they do to, to immigrants. The difference is the depth that they're going to go, go into it and the requirements they're going to, uh, as far as submissions go, at the consulate. And okay. I was going to say, mm -hmm. a real positive factor is that even in the Foreign Affairs Manual, it clearly says you, the consular officer's determination that an applicant does qualify for a non-immigrant visa should be sufficient. So it really gives the officer a lot of discretion in terms of well, also, whether it's even... That right, could be good news or bad, depending well, on the officer. Well, one is that, exactly, mm -hmm. depends on the officer. And the other thing is some of these were actually introduced prior to all of these court cases in the Supreme Court upholding the whole public charge rule. So the question is whether they will come back and even try to tighten it more because I think they were trying to take the middle ground before. So we don't know how this all will sort of pan out, which is sort of part of how we want to try to conclude it because we try to do most of these discussions within 30 minutes or so because we're mindful of your time. So obviously as the government has, you know, tries to enact details about the public charge rules that affect you as employers for your employees who are coming in either as permanent residents or on non-immigrant visas, as well as those who are you know, extending their uh, non-immigrant visa in the U.S., 
It's important to understand and appreciate the nuances. It's very complicated. It's very lengthy. It's way more work than I think the government realized, unless it's another gimmick for them to increase and raise fees, which they've been doing over the past couple of years. Um, we certainly would recommend that you seek the advice of an attorney in case your consular officer is either asking in-depth questions from your client when that's employees abroad, or USCIS issues an RFE or a notice of intention to deny the 485 based on possible public charge ground criteria. Uh, so again, on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Joel Janovich, Jessica Beaver, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you so much for joining us. We hope that this discussion was helpful and will help you as you continue to understand the ever-changing complex rules of immigration, and that if you ever need our help, we are certainly here to mentor, guide, and continue to advise you, your companies, your businesses, and your employees as you deal with today's climate. Thank you very much and have a wonderful afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.